Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 with Pastor John King. Well, it's good to see everyone here this morning. Today, uh, we start one of the uh, most um, interesting passages in the letter, Paul's letter from the Thessalonians. We'll be in chapter 2, and we'll cover verses 1 through 12. Chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, verses 1 through 12. Last week, 1 through 12. Last week, we looked at several reasons why the church of the Thessalonians was considered to be a model church. Wouldn't you like to be considered a model church? Well, if you wanted to be considered a model church, um, you probably would have to go through what the Thessalonians were going through. Uh, because uh, they were a model church with regards, not because they had really great entertainment or they had a beautiful building, uh, not because of all the things that sometimes we think about uh, in our churches in our modern society. Uh, they were a model church because of their response to persecution. And so now you're starting to think again about being a model church, perhaps. Um, but we know that they were, they were considered this because of the way Paul and his companions spoke in this letter. You know, he, he said, as you remember, he said, we are bound or morally obligated to thank God always for you. And then he references their strong faith and their love for one another. And in the midst of all that they were going through, every, these things, faith and love, were growing. And it was remarkable, not only to Paul, but to Silvanus or Silas, as he, we would know him as, and Timothy, they're his co-workers, But their endurance, and this is where churches make a difference in society, their endurance also served to encourage other believers in other churches in the region. It was an early part of the church growth. The church was growing rather rapidly in Macedonia and uh, Greece and in the Middle East at that time. And so Paul knew that their faith and their love was strong. But perhaps he had a little bit of concern about their hope. And so he, he made sure to build that up. And he was pointing that last week that their suffering was like a badge of honor, proving them worthy of the kingdom of God. And he guided them through some very hard concerns. You know, the things that we typically don't talk about with people when it comes to, to God and the Bible. And that's God's righteous judgment uh, over the wicked. How the Lord, when He returns, will justly take vengeance on those who have oppressed them for their faith in Christ. You know, He doesn't want them to take revenge. He wants to let the Lord do that. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. And so, His plan uh, of redemption was being rejected by many. God's plan to know uh, God through Jesus and to obey God and to receive this, this plan of salvation or redemption. They wouldn't have obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what happens. People, people are one side or the other with the issue. They either obey the gospel and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, or they do not. And there's a lot of in-between lip service that goes on, but really it boils down to those two things. And so he doesn't withhold the full message concerning God's punishment of everlasting destruction that will be experienced by all unbelievers. They will be removed forever from the presence and from the glory of God's power. 
Now, in contrast, he explained how the total opposite will be experienced by believers. You know, our blessed hope, the things we we look forward to as well. When the Lord comes to be glorified and to admire, to be admired among the saints. And imagine what the room, the the, the place is going to be like. The room in heaven where all the saints are gathered. And there's Jesus. You know, we get together, we get excited for the Lord now, but we can't even see Him physically with our eyes. But we get excited for what the Lord will do when we gather together. But imagine when we gather together, all the saints, and see Jesus for who He is, and all of His glory, and all of His splendor. And then we left off last week with the contents of Paul's prayers for them. And and again, he gives us wonderful lessons through these letters on how to pray for one another. He said he would pray, and this is how we should pray for one another, that they would be counted to be worthy of their calling. To be spiritually fulfilled with the good pleasure of His goodness. That's not the type of things we typically pray for. But that's the things Paul the Apostle was praying. And that's one of the things that we should pray. That's the things that the Lord prays for us, over us for. As He intercedes on us, on our behalf. All for God's glory. And all according to His grace. Amen. Well, today, Paul begins to address some unresolved issues. You know that that's you know, really what these letters are about, addressing misunderstanding. Because he had been with this church. He had spent time with them, a very short time. But he spent time and he taught them quite a bit of things that really amazes many people. And he taught them quite a bit about the end times, about eschatology, the last days, the things that are coming in the future. But he's here to address some unresolved issues concerning the coming of the Lord and our gathering, the rapture of the church. There was contradictory rumors. There were teachings uh, coming through. There were people saying things. There was even a, a false letter being circulated among them claiming to be from Paul. And it was declaring that they had actually missed the rapture. You know, that the rapture's already happened and that they're already in this great tribulation. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. He's here to explain it. That is not true. He reviews with them what he had already taught them about the day of Christ or the day of the Lord. And despite all the wonderful things that the Lord was doing among this church, Satan was working overtime. And we see that in our day as well. And so he reviews what he'd already taught them. The day of Christ or the day of the Lord has not come. And it will not come until two things happen. A great apostasy or falling away. And the revealing of what we refer to, the the, the son of perdition, the man of lawlessness we refer to as the Antichrist. God will not come back. Jesus will not be back. The day of the Lord will not arrive. The tribulation will not begin until those two things happen. We're going to go through these passages today uh, line by line. And, and explain all of that. But before we do, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time today. Once again, you have blessed us with your presence and your word. And so, Lord, we want to take full advantage of the time that's been set aside this morning to learn from you, to take things that maybe we already know, to review the things we've already been taught, but also, Lord, to be built up and to be edified with your truth. And so, Lord, we just simply ask that you would just give the words. Give, give me the words that come not from myself, but from you, Lord. Yes. 
And may we have ears to hear, all of us, what the Spirit is saying to us today. We pray this now in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So looking uh, at the very first part of the passage today, verses 1 and 2, Paul begins, he says, Now brethren, concerning the the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if it is from us, and as though the day of Christ had come. Uh, again, he's, you see that he's, he, this is a rapture passage. If you're, if you're a Bible student or you're taking notes, this is a rapture passage. Uh, the Lord is coming. We will be gathered together with Him. However, that day has not arrived yet. Um, some, some might want to view this passage as describing two aspects of Jesus' coming. The, the rapture of the church before the tribulation and then the coming with the church after uh, the tribulation and the battle of Armageddon. I personally see it as one event because Paul is, is responding to their concerns about the rapture when he taught them in First Thessalonians 4.17. Uh, you recall the passage. He said, uh, then, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so he says, we ask you, or we, we beg you. Now Paul is being gentle and kind with this church, knowing that if he was to scold them, it wouldn't help with their understanding. But you know, he's going to remind them here in a few verses that he's already taught them all this stuff. But he says, uh, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. To be shaken in mind means to be unsettled from the settled conviction and the purpose of heart that they had learned by the Lord, from the, from the Lord, that they'd learned from the Word of God. That's why it's so important for us as we study the Word of God. I believe it's really important for us to not only memorize Scripture, but to take notes. Because there's times in our lives as Christians that we can become shaken in mind and troubled, especially when we allow what's happening in the world to creep into our lives. And it comes in all angles now. But, you know, Paul was saying not to be shaken in mind. Not to, not to worry that the Christ had already come and he'd missed the rapture. Um, this is a metaphor that would be taken from the loosening of a ship from its moorings by a storm. You know, don't get, un, don't get uh, pushed away and out into the sea to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, in other words. And so he says not to be shaken or troubled. Now the word troubled is to means to be frightened. And you talk to people today uh, when they're being honest, uh, and they're going to tell you that this, what's happening in the world today is very frightening. And it was the same in, the, in, that, in that day with the Thessalonians. They were being persecuted. There was a lot of things going on. There was a lot of demonic activity. There was a lot of oppression. Uh, They were stirring things up because the government wasn't too happy about the arrangement that they were, you know, coming about. It was actually the people who benefited from the government didn't want their rice bowl to be disturbed. But in any event, he says, as we said last week, we read this passage early last week, it says either by not to be troubled by spirit or by word or by letter as if it is from us. When we say by spirit, we need to be careful because not all spiritual information comes from God. 1 John 4.1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits 
whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By word, you know, people, um, we have a lot to say. We all have a lot to say. And some people are very um, tricky with their words. And they're very, you know, able to convince us of things that are not true. And we see that, again, through all the various forms of media. And he says, or by letter. And that's the letter. The letter he's referring to is that false letter that's been circulating. As though the day of the Lord had come, or the day of Christ. Just as a little review, uh, one commentator wrote this. What, what, is, what are we talking about when we're talking about the day of the Lord? We're not talking about a singular day. You know, we're talking about a time period that's come about. Come about. Um, the day of the Lord, according to Constable, the day of the Lord is a period of history mentioned repeatedly in the Old Testament during which God will bring judgment and blessing on the people of the earth in a more direct, dramatic, and drastic way than ever before. And he references Isaiah 13, 6, Zephaniah 1, 14, and 6, if you're taking notes. He says, from other New Testament revelation concerning this period of time, it is believed that this will begin after the rapture of the church and will include the tribulation and the millennium. You know, we've been living in a world all of our lives, and for much of of history, uh, we live in a world This is sort of like the age of man. Man is trying to figure out how to do things. Man is in charge. Man is ruling the planet, trying to do the best that he can to govern and to control things. But when the day of the Lord arrives, that's all over. That party is over. The day of the Lord is going to establish things for all of eternity and make things right. And so we await for that time. But he's telling these people that hasn't come yet. That great tribulation that I taught you about. It's all in, written by the Apostle John. You know, the Apostle, the Revelation, uh, book of Revelation hadn't been written for probably 30 years at the time. But Paul had Revelation. He had the Old, the, the Testament, uh, Old Testament scriptures that spoke of it. And he also had Revelation from Christ. That's why his letters are considered to be, you know, inspired by the Spirit of God. Now, you might ask yourself the question, you know, who, who would be shaken and troubled enough to come to hasty conclusions about anything, right? And you look around at what goes on, and it is amazing, right? That, I mean, even ourselves, in ourselves, the things that we will believe, is just unbelievable. It's unbelievable that we would believe them. But you ask the question, who would believe, you know, that the rapture had already occurred and, and you, know, you know, having been taught all these things by Paul, how could anybody besides the Thessalonians? Well, throughout history we see that. We see this date setting. We see all these issues with end times and all the confusion about eschatology. The apostles had their concerns. Matthew 24, 6, when they asked Jesus, what's going to happen at the end? He says, and you will hear, and this is Jesus' words, you will hear of wars... 24-6 of Matthew, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but he said this, see that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So, you know, again, he's, he's, he's really uh, affirming that the time, yeah, it's getting worse. It's, it's getting closer and closer, but it has not arrived yet. You have historical date setters, right? You have modern day date setters. You have present day date setters. Uh, in, in the 1800s, you had the Millerites, and uh, they were predicting that uh, Jesus was going to return uh, in 1844. 
It didn't happen and ended up being called the great disappointment. And there were thousands upon thousands of Christians who fell into this. And you can go look it up. It's all there. All the information's online. The great disappointment. You have modern day date setters. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that in 1914 Jesus was going to come back. And if you get into all that, you can read all, all the other stuff that they believe. You have present day date setters. You, you may have heard of you know, 88 reasons Jesus is coming back in 1988 that were written. Uh, October 21st, 2011 is going to be the end of the world. December 21st, 2012 is the end of the world. Jesus is going to return in the year of Jubilee. Uh, Jesus is going to return during the next blood red moon. You hear that? This present day it happens all the time. But Paul is here to say, look, it's, it's not going to happen until what we're going to about to talk about, these two things. Warren Wiersbe wrote this. He said, when, when considering the purpose of Bible prophecy, one purpose of Bible prophecy is not for you and I to build a calendar. It's not for us to do that. But it's to build our character. Paul emphasized this fact in both of his Thessalonian letters, and our Lord warned us not to set dates for his coming. Date setters are usually upsetters, he writes, and that is exactly what happened in the Thessalonian assembly. So when you read the story of what's going on with the Thessalonians and you see what's going on today, you see it's being repeated over and over and over again. And so in verses 3 through 5, Paul is going to review the chronology of events that he taught them about, the fundamental truths concerning the day of the Lord. Now, we only know that he's answering them. We don't know what the conversation, we don't have a direct uh, you know, reference to the conversation that he had and what he had taught them. So we have, to, we have to kind of piece it back together by what he's responding to. And he starts out in verse 3, he says, Let no one deceive you by any means. And we talked about the means, right? The, the mouthpiece, the, the false letters, uh, you know, all this stuff. He says, by any means, deceive you or beguile. They were subject to rumors. They were subject to words of knowledge. They were subject to a false letter. He says, uh, the first of the two things that must happen are the widespread apostasy throughout the earth. A widespread apostasy. He says, for the day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And so he, he's going to go through the order of events that we've previously looked at. Now this falling away is, is a, the word falling away, is, it's, a, it's a word apostasia. So apostasy, if you will. Uh, but it also means defection, uh, revolt, to rebel. Uh, New Living Translation says the, the Great Rebellion. And um, I, we need to clear something up as well. I think it's important. Uh, David Guzik wrote this. He said, Some have suggested the idea behind falling away is really a departure in the sense of the rapture of the church. But a departure implies that the one leaving does so of his own accord and initiative. And we know the rapture is not going to be of our own accord nor of our initiative. And this is not the case with the catching away of the church, the rapture. So if you hear somebody trying to, try to uh, you know, bring that to bear, uh, I, I don't think it's true. Now, 
Paul is using uh, a little bit of Greek language here, and I am not a Greek scholar, don't even want to pretend to be. But he uses what we call the definite article, the word the, before what he describes as the falling away. And this is considered important because it is much more significant than typical uh, a typical revolt or rebellion. If you say, I rebel, we had a rebellion, or if you say we had the falling away, uh, it, more, more, uh, more understandable perhaps for us football fans is when you watch NFL football players and they introduce themselves on primetime games and they say, you know, so-and-so from the Ohio State, right? And they're creatively placing an emphasis on their school. And so here, Paul is emphasizing the great apostasy. And he must do that because we know that there's so much apostasy and falling away already happening. So here's the picture. Multitudes, millions from all over the world will be rebelling and revolting against God during this time. And we see it around the world, but we don't see it in a collective group as it's going to happen. Uh, Leon Morris said this. He said, In the last times there will be an outstanding manifestation of the powers of evil arrayed against God. I mean, people may want to rebel against God, and you do see people coming out directly. But a lot of times their rebellion is in the form of a false religion or just a, you know, pushing it away and trying to live their lives and trying to do their own thing. But this is a direct coming against God. Matthew 24.10, Jesus said it this way. He said, And then many will be offended and will betray one another and they will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now what he's referring to is the tribulation saints. Because during the tribulation it's going to be really terrible, as Jesus described. Worse than what we can experience right now. And there will be some who come through the tribulation or they give their lives for Christ during the tribulation. And so here you have, you know, that first, that great falling away. There's a whole lot more we could say about that, but we just don't have time for it, I'll be honest with you. The second thing, the revealing of the Antichrist. So you have the great falling away. Now you have the revealing of the Antichrist. He says, And the man of sin is revealed in the son of perdition. He describes him as the son of perdition. So we know he's a man, the word anthropos. We know he's human. But he's referred to as a man of sin. Or a man of lawlessness. And you, you can ask the question, well, aren't we all sinners? You know, aren't we all under the curse of Adam and Eve? Aren't we all naturally born that way? Don't we struggle with sin? Yes. But this man is so possessed by sin that he seems unable to exist without it. He's utterly given up to sin. So he is the man of sin. It describes who he is through in and throughout. It also says he's the son of perdition. Now, perdition, the word means destruction. So some versions would say the son of destruction. And that signifies the destiny of the person being mentioned. Matthew 7.13, Jesus says that we are to enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, leads to perdition. And there are many who will go in by it. So this man, this Antichrist, he is doomed to the same fate as his father, the devil. And it says he is re- be revealed. Now the word revealed, apocalypto, means to uncover or to unveil. I mean, obviously he will be an adult. He will already have existed on the earth 
Uh, we'll talk a little bit about people who think, you know, who's the Antichrist. But uh, he, he will have existed on the earth, but his public appearance into who he would be, first as a great statesman, then as an evil, uh, you, know, you know, son of the devil, uh, will be revealed. And you say, well, I haven't seen the word Antichrist in any of Paul's letters. Well, you won't either. Uh, but you will see it in John. First uh, and second John, he uses the term Antichrist five times, either describing the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist, and Antichrist, small, or many such Antichrist. The Greek word anti has two meanings. It means against and instead of. Anti, against and instead of. And we'll see it. We see it in verse 4. He's against God. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So he's now an adversary of God. This is when he truly reveals who he is in the middle of the tribulation. 3.5 years in the middle of the tribulation. And this guy, he's like the supreme gangster. He's not simply some powerful drug lord that you, know, that you read about, the Pablo Escobars of the world. Um, you know, these guys are directly opposed against law, and they make a living and a life out of it. And you say, man, I would never want to be that guy. And thank the Lord that you don't. But there are people, and we see glimpses of it, who just say, uh, you know, I don't want to use foul language from the pulpit especially, but they, you know, they just say, uh, I'm against all that is lawful. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'll kill whoever I want. I will get whatever I want for my own you know, pleasure. And I'll do it all totally out and against the law. And so this man is so outwardly opposed to God Almighty that even the worst oppressor or dictator in all of history doesn't measure up. And he will be given the opportunity to lead untold millions of people to follow in his destruction after his short time in the spotlight. It says he exalts himself above all that is called God. He's above all that is, uh, that is called God. What's called God? This is God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the Creator, the Sustainer. Everything that it is a, you know, has to do with God Almighty, the God of the Bible, he's against. And he considers himself to be above that. And so he sits as God in the temple of God. You know, Satan wanted to be as God. Showing himself that he is God. And this is all, you know, if you wanted to really dig into it, again, we'd never have enough time, but Revelation chapter 13. Just write that down, take it home, and, uh, you know, if you've got nothing else to do and you just want to learn more about the Antichrist, <laughs> take it home and read it. I personally am not looking for the Antichrist. I'm, I'm like you guys. We're looking for Jesus, okay? But we have to know that these things are happening. And it says he will set himself up in the temple of God. Well, they don't have a temple right now. What's, how is that going to work out? Well, uh, before the Great Tribulation, the Jewish temple will have been permitted to be rebuilt. Daniel 9.27 And Jesus affirms this in Matthew 24.15. It says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, Whoever reads, let him understand. Those are the words of the Lord. One writer said it this way, Satan has always, want, always wanted to be worshipped and served as God. He will one day produce his masterpiece, the Antichrist, who will cause the world to worship Satan and believe Satan's lies. 
And in verse 5, Paul reminds him, he says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I taught you these things? So again, this is a review for them. But we're being led in and being, you know, this, this end times theology, if you will, is being revealed to us here 2,000 years later. It's an amazing thing. They were being swayed and getting excited by other teaching. And this is a reminder for all of us to stick to the Word of God. That's why we preach the Bible here. He says, I told you these things. Well, what did Paul tell them? He told them that, you know, what we've learned so far, that the apostasy will come before the day of the Lord. The man of lawlessness will be revealed before the day of the Lord. The man of lawlessness will set himself up as a God. There is a restrainer, we're going to talk about that, who keeps the man of lawlessness from appearing. And they know that this restrainer is presently doing the work of restraining. Again, if you're a Bible student you want to read more about the Antichrist, I'll give you several passages here. First of all, he's a peacemaker, Revelation 6, 1, 2. Next, he's a protector. He sets it in Daniel 9, 24, and 27. He actually gets the, uh, the world nations to sign a treaty with Israel. Now, you look at what's going on in the Middle East right now. You're going to kind of, some of us are maybe getting tired of seeing it. But it's no, there's nowhere near a resolution to a peace treaty with the nation Israel that would allow them to practice their traditional uh, you know, Judaism and in their own temple. We're nowhere near that right now. But he will, he will manage to get that done um, through his, his ability, his supernatural ability ultimately, to, um, to really trick people. Daniel 9.27, he then becomes a peace breaker. We talked about that. Three and a half years into the tribulation, he breaks his covenant with Israel. And he takes over their temple and he demands that they worship him. Then we have the mark of the beast. You have to have that. And there will be satanic power with signs and wonders. Then in Revelation 13, he becomes a persecutor. This is the intense persecution against the Jews, but there will be 144,000 of them miraculously protected. And the tribulation saints will there be there to give, pay with their lives. And then finally in Revelation 19, uh, 11, and 12, he becomes a prisoner. At Jesus' return, the Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So you know these days are going to be numbered. But he said earlier, he said, do not be deceived by any means. Think of the ways on a, on a I got to say on a moment by moment basis, because we always have these cell phones. We always have these flat screens. So think of the ways that we are subject to deception. We have a, a, an age group in our country now, probably the 18 to 24 year old age group. And the majority of them apparently believe everything they see on that flat screen. It's got to be true. And, you know, so think of the ways that you and I, each and every day, are subject to it. And then, of course, we've had, you know, who is the Antichrist? Uh, uh, you guys, we've been through this, you know, ancient history and biblical records. Uh, they, those who demanded to be worshipped by the Jews, you had the Roman Emperor, Emperor Caligula, you had the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, you even had Protestant reformers who pointed to the Pope as the Antichrist. And you had Catholics pointing back at Martin Luther as the Antichrist. 
And in modern history, you have Napoleon and Hitler and Barack Obama and Donald Trump have all been, you know, labeled with that tag, Antichrist. But what we do have today, and none of those things are obviously true, but what we do have today is the spirit of Antichrist among us. People who say that Jesus is not from God are controlled by the spirit of the Antichrist. Satan opposes Christ and he desires to deceive people into false view of who Jesus truly is. The spirit of the Antichrist teaches against Christ. To twist the truth about Jesus Christ is to pervert the gospel. Satan works to spread lies about Christ to keep people in the dark. 1 John 4.3, he said, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Moving on to our next section, verses 6 through 8, we talk about the restrainer. Paul gives them yet another reason why the Christ had not come back yet. He says in verse 6, And now you know what is restraining, so apparently they know, that he may be revealed in his own time. Who, who, who may be revealed? The Antichrist. What is restraining? Now to restrain is to, to hinder or hold back. And he says that he may be revealed in his own time. That This person previously concealed is now going to make their public appearance. But when? When the Lord says it will be. When God decides. Because God is sovereign over history. And his timing and his plan of redemption is under his total and unchallenged control. But when this Antichrist is fully revealed, he will no longer be working secretly. He will be working openly. He will be undisguised as to what he does. (coughs) Verse 7 says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We know from our study of uh, these letters and our study of the Greek word mystery, you have the, the word mysterion, and this is the hidden purpose or counsel. It's not like a mystery, like you're trying to solve a riddle and you have some clues. A mystery from God is something that only God can reveal. I mean, you wouldn't even think to ask it unless he revealed it to you. And he says the mystery of lawlessness that takes place Lawlessness, again, is contempt and violation of the law. It's wickedness. But notice, he says, and and this is where we all kind of go, oh, I get it. He says, it's already at work. It's already happening. It's already has energy. It's showing itself operative. We know God's word is active among us, but we also know that Satan is active as well. Amen. You know, all of our lives, we've been... um, you know, living and seeing what evil and lawlessness looks like. Murdering, lying, cheating, stealing, cursing. We go to war. We oppress the weak. And even as believers, redeemed by the blood of Christ, it's a mystery of iniquity as to why we do the things that we do. The things that we're tempted by. In fact, if we didn't have the Holy Spirit, we would probably cut loose in some way. Perhaps that was your previous life before you came to Christ, where you were, had very little restraint in how you lived your life. You did what you wanted to do. The only restraint you might have had was breaking the law, because you still have law enforcement. Thank the Lord 
and we have law enforcement who represent God in their own sense, in their own way. So, you know, why would you want to defund them anyway? Um, I know there's nothing, there's not, not perfection among law enforcement, but my goodness. He says, but he who now restrains will do so, hold him back. Now, he, he says that which restrains, now he uses his masculine pronoun, he, and you probably have it in capital H, and the most logical and obvious conclusion is that he is God the Holy Spirit that is restraining those who would do complete and total lawlessness. But there will be a removal of this divine restraint at some point. It says until he is taken out of the way, the Holy Spirit, not removed totally from the face, you know, from the world. And that's the reason we say that. And sometimes I've, I've even been under the mistaken belief, and I may have said it in a way that says, well, when the church gets raptured, the Holy Spirit's gone and everything's going to go crazy. Uh, partially true. When the church gets raptured, the revelation, the tribulation begins, and yes, everything's going to go crazy, but the Holy Spirit is still going to be present in the Old Testament sense because we're going to have, New Te- we're going to have uh, uh, tribulation saints receiving Jesus during this crazy time, perhaps millions of them. And so the, the, what's happened is now the restrainer, the, the Holy Spirit, is not taken away, but taken out of the way to prevent lawlessness. Not totally removed from the earth. And then we have, we had a rapture passage earlier, but verse 8, if you'll take note, is a second coming passage. It's the second coming of Christ. It says, And then the lawlessness one will be revealed, and the Lord will consume with breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Paul doesn't give much time before he sort of jumps ahead and says, by the way, this crazy guy I've been telling you about, this Antichrist, this son of perdition, this man of lawlessness, is going to be no contest when Christ returns. Notice, he will destroy him with the brightness of his coming and he will consume him with the breath of his mouth. I mean, it's not going to be this battle, you know, where you know you get on your side and lob some, you know, whatever it is, some supernatural signs and wonders at each other. No, Christ is just going to, you're out of here. And so Paul wants to make sure that you know he poses no threat at all to the Lord Himself, as powerful and as wicked and Satan-inspired as He is. Isaiah 11.4 says, But with righteousness, talking about the Lord, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. That's the Lord at his return. Moving on to our final passage, uh, 9 through 12 today, we see really doom and deception. And I'm glad we're taking communion after that. Because... You know, look at it. What it says, it says, He will deceive, uh, he will, he will, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. With all power and signs and lying wonders. To have, uh, you know, this, this working of Satan. Satan's the one who's behind it all. We know, you know, we, a lot of times we use the expression, ah, Satan, you know, we know something's going on. He's been stirring lies and he's been causing problems and causing dissension in families and in churches and businesses and all over the place. 
in society. But this guy will be given the power to perform signs and lying wonders. He'll be able to do miracles to deceive. He'll be under the complete control of Satan. He will be energized by Satan. He will be brought back to life after an assassination attempt uh, on his life. In Revelation 13.3, you can read about that. And it says in verse 10 that he will, with all unrighteous deception among all those who perish, he's only going to be able to deceive unbelievers. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind that if you are in God's Word, if you are a believer and you have God the Holy Spirit, you have the power not to be deceived because you have the, God of, the, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God. But when the rapture happens and now you're in this great tribulation, he will have millions upon millions of people whom he can deceive and they're mostly the people who have rejected God in the first place. They've rejected. And it says, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. In other words, everyone who has not you know, is not going to stand up to the mark of the beast and refuse to, to bow down to this guy when he creates, you know, he becomes a god, acts like a god. They're the only ones that are going to be able to, to uh, you know, have any hope of eternal life with the Lord. But mo- most people are going to give in. You know, it's been said. Some people say, "Well, I'm going to wait if the rapture happens in our day. I'm going to wait till right at the very end before I give my life to the Lord." And I've heard it said many times. It's like, you didn't have the faith to stand with Christ now. Do you think you're going to have the faith to trust in the Lord in that day? I don't think so. Good luck with that, I should say. Unrighteous deception among those who perish. Everyone, everyone in this room, everyone in the world is going to follow someone. Everyone that you know, everyone that's ever lived is going to follow someone. They're either going to follow God, the Lord Jesus Christ, or they're going to follow Satan. And so he's going to give the power to deceive because they did not receive the love of the truth. He gives the reason why. They reject God's love. That they might be saved as the Word. Even though He has provided a way of escape to live eternally in heaven and to have victory over sin in this life. And then in verse 11, this is, this is scary, if you will, for those that aren't saved. He says, he will, this reason God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Because it's so outrageous, it's so crazy, the thing that you're being told, and think about what happens today. Just think about the, the question, and I don't, I'm not a political person. When the question was asked, what is a woman? Think about it. You go, ha, you know, is God sending you a strong delusion that you should believe a lie? I mean, we're seeing glimpses of it. And what ends up happening is God gives them what they want. And I don't say that from a prideful standpoint. I mean, God's grace was so incredible in my own life, and you have your own testimony as well. I deserve death and hell and destruction, and He saw fit to show mercy and grace unto me. And so when we take communion, we'll we'll humble ourselves before the Lord as we should all the time. But when we read this and we can get ourselves, and you see me getting a little worked up, you get worked up because you see this spirit of Antichrist, this mystery of lawlessness that's spreading all around our world. And the only way to, to solve that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And that's our call. So after humankind continually refused God and embraced wickedness and self-exaltation, God gave them over. Romans 1.24 Likewise, in the last days, men and women will refuse the truth. They were running after evil and conceit, and so God sends them a powerful delusion. And in each case, the judgment is just, resulting from their own choices. Since they prefer lies, God obliges them with delusions. The ultimate delusion is their acceptance of the Antichrist and his claims for worship. The ultimate. It is the lie because it is an opposition to truth that God has given Christ in all authority. And then it says this, this will be their judgment for not receiving the truth. Verse 12. That they may be condemned who did not believe the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. As we begin to uh, close our, our message today and, and prepare for communion, we need to remember that truth and wickedness are kind of mutually exclusive. You either follow one or the other, and there's no neutrality in issues of life and morality, righteousness and wickedness. There's nothing neutral. We, we try to live uh, maybe sometimes on the fence in life, and we can't do that. And rejecting truth will always pull a person towards evil. And the further that a person continues to move in their sin, the more deeply entrenched they become and the more hardened of heart and conscience that they become. And but at each point, every person chooses making God's judgment fair and just. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.